Welcome to ACFM, the home of the weird left. I'm Nadia Idol, and as usual, I'm joined by Jeremy Gilbert. Hello. And Kia Milburn. Hello. And before we get on to the show, we just want to extend a massive thank you to all of our fans, new and old, who came down to see us at The World Transformed and participated in our workshop on the ecologies of solidarity. It was lovely to spend an evening with you. So thanks so much to everyone who came down. So everyone, today's episode is on revolution. So guys, why are we talking about revolution today? There's lots of reasons why we would want to talk about it. But one key reason is that we all feel that we're in a situation now, a sort of historic situation where... Um, the scale of the climate crisis in particular means that, you know, just to sort of preserve human life and civilization, then we need systemic change of, of a type and on a scale that we would historically we would have described as revolutionary. Historically, you need a revolution or something that would have been described as a revolution to make that happen. But it's also pretty obvious, at least in a place like Britain, that we don't seem to be in a historic situation which you know, you would describe as pre-revolutionary. So the, the political and cultural conditions are not anywhere near to those you would expect to see in a, in a society on the brink of revolution. So the, that, and that leaves a whole set of questions as to, well, what do we, what do, we do about it? I mean, the way, the way you put it, Nadia, about um, why are we talking about revolution and is it even possible? I think you might have meant that as, is revolution possible today? But it might also be interpreted as, is it even possible to talk about revolution? Does it even make sense to talk about it? And I think that gets us into this this idea that, you know, the way people have talked about revolution and what they've had in their minds has changed a lot. Our idea of revolution is like rupture or change, some sort of rupture where everything starts anew or you have a new start, a new beginning. You know, that's not that old. It's only, you know, two or three hundred years old. In fact, it goes back to the the revolutions of the of the 18th century, the French Revolution, the American Revolution, and the Haitian Revolution, which we should probably add in. And before that, that idea of revolution wasn't thinkable. It just wasn't, a, you weren't able to think in that way, basically. And, and so the revolution, the word revolution, you know, it brings to mind this sort of revolving. And it, in does, it is in fact linked to this idea that predates those revolutions of the 18th century, this idea of history in which History moves through huge cycles which repeat themselves. This is sort of like one of the ways in which the, the, the ancient Greeks would have thought about history as this sort of cyclical thing that happens rather than something that goes in a particular direction. And we, 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 we get the word progress and progressive from those sort of direction. So it was only made possible to think about, about revolution in those terms, you know, a few hundred years ago. And is it possible to think of it now? It's not really clear what it means anymore. Another thing that revolution makes me think of is a kind of outward energy. I think revolution is necessarily exothermic, like it produces energy. It's kind of like a burst and then there's energy that comes out, it's active, and then something settles. And then obviously it depends what's in the void. I think, I think it's a really interesting thing to think about is whether revolution. you think of revolution in sort of quantitative or qualitative terms. Like, is it just like a handy name for a sort of accumulation of changes and 
shifts or is it like some identifiable tipping point which then creates a whole sort of qualitative change because i don't i don't really know i mean that because i think that idea of it being exothermic that's one way of thinking of it as both that it's you know a revolution when you see it because because it produces a level of qualitative change that sort of produces various sorts of you know new possibilities I think that is really interesting, but it might also only come about as a result of an accumulation of smaller changes. Huh, but but don't, okay, so right, wow, okay, this might be getting onto something else then. So is, because to me there is an event, like there is there is a point which can be pointed to, which is like, this is the day the thing happened. And it might have been because of an accumulation of 10 days, 10 years, you know, 10 centuries. Um of pressure, but there is a day where it started, or there's a day that it happened, or there's days that it happened in between. So are you saying that there's another way of looking at it where actually it's just an accumulation of little things and the tipping point isn't isn't kind of spectacular? No, I think well I think this does come on to the topic of like the difference between revolution and reform, actually. Because I think if you if you have any notion of revolution, then then the notion does imply that there, there's a tipping point you can identify. Like it might only be a tipping point. It might not be like suddenly everything changed for no reason, but it is a tipping point. Whereas there's a completely non-revolutionary idea of progress, which is that progress is so sort of piecemeal and so sort of accumulative that indeed there never would be a tipping. Like the biggest tipping point you could imagine would be like, you know, a particularly successful reforming government. It'd be like the 1945 Labour government partly why you know that it's still like a real sort of fetish for labor politics in in britain is the question of a wall was a government like that just an example of a really successful efficient technocratic reforming government or did it mark such a qualitative shift that you know you have to understand it as having been oriented to yeah was it were they trying to produce a really qualitative shift in power relations but I guess, I mean, what we mean, I mean, in, in, to a large extent, this is all semantic. I mean, it's all, I mean, the semantics are really important, but what people mean by revolution in any given moment will just depend, like, you know, how they're conceptualizing those things. And I guess, as, as you said, we should go back and think about the sort of history of, of how people have used the term so that we can get a sense, because people have used the term in all the different ways. <laughs> Whoa, 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 sorry to butt in. This is uh, Future Kia, Kia from the Future, a future in which we went on to record at least an hour and a half on the history of revolutions and revolutionary thought, the English Civil War, the French Revolution, the Haitian Revolution, the Paris Commune, the Russian Revolution, you get the idea. It went on for an hour and a half, then we realised the whole episode would be like three hours. We decided we're going to take out that history bit and put it into its own separate podcast. That podcast is out now. Go and check it out. Have a listen. It's a really good episode, I reckon. Slightly too much Jeremy for my taste, but you'll probably enjoy it. Anyway, let's get back to the future. No, um, forward to the past. Uh, well, anyway, look, here, here's Nadia. Meanwhile, women are going, actually, for the last thousand years of all of your different revolutions, men, whenever some one group has won over the other... The, one of the first spoils of war have been our bodies. So fuck that. We're going to have a sexual revolution and feminism as a revolutionary project is a thing in the yeah, West totally, anyway. Yeah. yeah. During that same period of time. And there becomes a real re- reimagination of women as people, frankly, rather than women as women. 
We've talked about this before, but it's, it is pretty interesting that the feminist consciousness raising groups, which were like the organisational form of that, what they call second wave feminism after the first wave sort of suffragette period, that consciousness raising groups are really quite influenced by practices going on in China at that point. There's the Chinese Cultural Revolution, which is this huge period of ferment in which, you know, you have these practices of like Maoist self-criticism, et cetera, et cetera. And that sort of feeds through. Yeah, because it's not, because it's not just, sorry to interrupt you here, because I think it's, it's really important to, to point out it's because it, it's seen very much as a revolution or an attempt at serious social change on a structural level. So when all of these policies are being, you know, borrowed and adapted from like other movements, these are because these are other movements that are looking to create mass structural change. This is not yeah. about this is and that's how the kind of women's movement was was viewed. It was like we want to change the entirety of society. Yeah. Not I want to change me. I want to change yeah. absolutely fucking everything and how it's done, you know, in the seats of power down to all of the institutions I have to engage with because it seems because you might think from you know not not knowing known much knowing much about that history looking at it from you know 2021 it's saying well why would the women's movement look to you know maoists maoists to borrow something right it might not make sense and so what i was doing there is by way of explaining that regardless of what you think about those tactics there's a logic yeah that binds those the, those kind of movements or uh like re- revolutionary groups together that's exactly what was going on in the Chinese Cultural Revolution. It was this. It was this attempt to change social social relations now, basically. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Right. So I was arguing that rather than that, that feminism is a Maoist plot, <laughs> a Maoist plot by. I wouldn't um, would put it past some people, but I know you. <laughs> no, are I mean, that's sort like, of the dominant yeah. attitude on the on the right. Yeah, and it, I, it is interesting thinking about these connections, isn't it? Because feminist demands had been had been really an important part of radical socialist and communist demands going back to the nineteenth century. And I mean, who had the right to abortion first, and who was putting women in you know spaceships? You yeah, know? totally. It, it, yeah. Was, it, it was it wasn't the English or the French. No, no, it was the Soviet Union, and I mean, there's all you know, there's all kinds of. Uh, there's a book. There's a book came out. Or I don't know if it's a book or an article because I only I just heard about it on a podcast a couple of years ago about you know some historian about how you know saying that women had better sex in the Soviet Union than in post Soviet Russia because they were yeah. more empowered. And um, it is a book. I've got it downstairs. Yeah. It is a t-shirt as yeah. well. People what have better people have better sex under socialism. I think it's called. And um, well, I mean, it's women. It's women particularly who are seen as you know being. Yeah, there's good evidence for saying women are much more empowered under socialism. But broadly speaking, even people who you, you, we would now identify as having been sort of very radical sort of feminists and, and socialists were, were largely were seeing feminist demands either as a continuation and radicalisation of liberal demands for democratic rights or as a, a continuation and radicalisation of socialist demands. I think it is sort of coming out of China, really. It's the Chinese experience. It's the experience of the Chinese revolution and then Chinese communism and the fact that the Chinese communist le- various sections of the Chinese communist leadership, you know, obviously most famously Mao himself, they think that the, the Chinese traditions of like Confucianism and deference to authority and ancestor worship are like inherently obstacles to building a communist you know, society in, in China. And so you have to really take on 
people's like basic preconceptions about the world. And, it, and that's why you have the consciousness raising groups in the 40s, from the 40s, and, the, and, you have, and then you have Mao's attempted uh, sort of top-down project, of the, the, the great Chinese cultural revolution of the, in the 60s. And, then, and I think that does influence the emergence of the idea of feminism as a project to, to, to do the same thing. I mean, thing. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that there's a logical connection yeah, in terms I'm, of like the scale I'm not saying. But I will, I'm not saying that. Well, I'm, well I, I know you. You might be saying that. I I'm am. Say, well, I am saying it because the, the because consciousness raised, because they had because consciousness raising groups was a term directly lifted from a book about the Chinese Revolution in the forties. Like nobody, yeah, sure. nobody used that term. So presumably, the people who used that term knew where they were getting it from. I mean, they did. But I think we can we can make it. We could do a, a little bit of an air point of like you know particularly the socialist feminists saw that feminist movement as a revolution in the revolution, right? A little yeah. bit like the Haitian revolution, which is, you know, That's basically true, yeah. this, you, this is foreshortened. Once again, these people are not included. These social relations are not included in the revolution. And so it was, you know, it was the, the continuation of, of sexism and sexist practice in the new left, which was one of the spurs to the, to the, and if you if you read Angela Davis's like women women race and class like it's very clear like what this is coming out from and like where the radical direction is. Yeah, that's on, right. Yeah, yeah. You know, it doesn't sit outside like we want to change the world order. No, that's right. That's right. The thing that really happens in the sixties and into the early seventies is this idea of feminism not uh, not just as radicalizing a set of demands that are coming out of either liberalism or socialism but as a revolutionary project in its own right as something that ha- you know it has something to revolt against which is patriarchy and it's you know it identifies patriarchy as, as a more as an older more established in some sense more fundamental system of power relationships than say capitalism which it and which it and, and it takes those as its primary sort of objects that is linked to a whole a sort of idea of the possibility of sort of completely changing a way of life, which is really, really radical. And and the idea of counterculture, it partly emerges at the, in the end of the 60s as part of the same context. And uh, people are talking about the sexual revolution more in the kind of modern sense of talking about a revolution, which is a bit like the way we talk about the industrial revolution. They just mean like a, a wholesale change in kind of attitudes, really, rather than a kind of fundamental shift in power structures necessarily but also like but also the pill you know the yeah. change in con- availability of contraception and women being able to control their bodies literally in a very practical way yeah yeah you're right i mean i don't i'm thinking about this on my feet now because i think this is really interesting because my understanding of that term the sexual revolution is i don't know when people were first using it there's several meanings yeah but it has several meanings doesn't it so there's this quite casual sense and really they just and there's a really casual sense in which it just refers to, to general social liberalization basically and it just means like everybody having loads of sex basically and like porn being freely available and you know. Yeah, there's more more people more people are having sex and you don't necessarily have to marry the girl once you get her pregnant. So there's like pros and cons, isn't there? Yeah. But the point is as well that that does involve a change in power. I mean, that can't not if you have anything like a feminist understanding of how society works, that can't not involve a, a, a massive shift in power relationships. Mm-hmm. And so the, the the sexual revolution, as some in some sense, an actual revolution, an actual massive shift in power relationships, is also you know, something people are really sort of 
conscious of, but also conscious of a need to keep fighting for. Yeah, and it depends who's participating in it. Like a, a, a load more people are participating in it, but I think it remains a question about like, you know, obviously change society, but whether it, but you know, whether those practices or viewpoints or perspectives really touch that many people. It led to massive so- social change institutionally, but I don't know about who holds the power. You know, who was partaking in the... Se- if we take the sexual re- revolution as people are more freely a- able to have sexual partners, and then the some people radically seeing it as part of their revolutionary practice, that they no longer want to be... You know, women no longer want to be locked into marriages with men so you know part of that like to what extent was that practiced on a on a mass scale you know it doesn't mean that it didn't change social attitudes social attitudes didn't change that it led to changes in legislation and that, that was really you know really important but in terms of like people's practices like how radical they were for for you know a lot of people the arguments made well you know that was just done, done in london mate whereas the rest of the country was pretty much living a very conservative lifestyle i mean that is said isn't it in some ways you can link it up to this idea that like the second wave feminist movement is in some ways a, a revolution within the revolution part of the revolution in the, within the revolution was the sexual revolution and the way that that was the way that played out in the sort of counterculture was seemed to be to the advantage of men to a large degree and that you know basically that was one of the stimuluses to to you know a sort of autonomous women's movement mm-hmm. but you're 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 also right that you know that, that these things started off in the 1960s the sexual revolution was something that was taking place amongst very small groups of people but across the 1970s that changes to a, to a large degree the counterculture sort of massifies in the 1970s but it also stimulates social attitude changes you know, which do have a really big effect, and that takes place for the 80s and 90s. All right. I guess if you were thinking about revolutionary music or sort of that's also been sort of commercially popular, then in some ways, you, I think the greatest example of the past few decades is Public Enemy, at the sort of height of their commercial success in the late 80s, which is in some ways is an odd moment for this to be happening so we could play a track like revolutionary Gener- generation from fear of their album fear of a black planet They're quite self-consciously borrowing imagery again from from the Panthers. They they kind of redefine the kind of soundscape of hip hop. These very dense sort of sample collages uh, before a series of U.S. Supreme Court decisions basically made it impossible for people to release albums with that amount of sampling. Um, they especially sampled a lot of soul and funk, which was a really deliberate. Uh, reference to the kind of high moment of black militancy in the early 70s. It's an interesting moment because on the microdose we did about folk music, we played Tracy Chapman's big hit, talking about a revolution. 
I mean, if you said like, what's the most revolutionary period in like you know American popular music? Like, you know, very few people are going to say off the top of their heads uh, like nineteen eighty seven to like nineteen ninety five. But actually, this is the period when quite explicit music with an explicitly revolutionary politics, um, like pops up, keeps popping up actually, even in the sort of pop charts and. I think, as we said when we were discussing it, I mean, one can make a fairly pessimistic reading of like why that is, like, because this 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 coincides precisely with the end of the the Cold War and the end of the Soviet Union. So, it's the moment when there's really there's no there's absolutely no threat within American society from a revolutionary politics. So it's fine to start talking about saying you want a revolution, which by implication in all of these contexts would be some sort of a socialist revolution. It's fine to start talking, it's fine to start saying that because nobody, there's absolutely no chance of it happening. There's also absolutely nothing in the political behaviour of the generation who were buying all these records, which is basically, you know, my generation, is Generation X, uh, that led, that would lead one to the conclusion that they were sort of um, revolutionary. In the bunkers, yeah. Yeah. We could, I mean, we did, when we did the episode about the long 90s, we talked about the early 90s, the possibility of understanding a moment of radical possibility in the early 90s that then gets closed down by, you know, sort of neoliberal hegemony and capitalist realism. And I think maybe that does, maybe this reinforces that idea, actually. Maybe this does reinforce that idea that there was this moment of possibility. And and the, the shift from radical possibility to capitalist realism is nowhere more explicitly registered than in in hip-hop you know it's it's public enemy being replaced by dre and snoop as the key figures in commercial hip-hop really registers that shift and actually you know mark you know mark fisher's phrase capitalist realism was initially inspired by an essay by simon reynolds in which he critiqued people who defended people like dre and snoop on the grounds of their supposed social realism so, all right, let's go to the 70s and the sort of the effects of the radical disillusion with communism, with the Soviet model, and also with the Cultural Revolution. I mean, it's important to understand there, was, there were a few people in the West, a few radicals who were sympathetic to Mao's Cultural Revolution, but most people, even on the left, thought it was just a kind of barbaric, megalomaniac experiment that totally failed. So there's a real disillusion by the 70s amongst people who a generation earlier would have expected to be you know probably sympathizers with the soviet union probably seeing it seeing themselves as allies of it by the 70s in france for example the wave of intellectuals that included people like Deleuze and Guattari are very much influenced by the failure of the French Communist Party either to support the student movement in 68 or to properly condemn the invasion of Czechoslovakia, the suppression of the so-called Prague Spring in 68. There's a general sense in lots of quarters that the form of revolutionary politics, which manifests itself in 1917, which is also practised by the Chinese Communist Party, has indeed has not led to the sort of liberated societies that people were hoping for. Instead, it's led to something which is basically worse than the forms of mixed economy and liberal capitalism that you get in places like Britain from a, from a sort of left perspective. And so on the one hand, there's all this kind of liberal critique that becomes fashionable in some quarters from the 70s onwards, which basically says is basically echoing Edmund Burke's conservative critique of the French Revolution 
from the 1780s is basically saying, look, the whole idea of revolution is flawed. Because if you, you know, the idea of revolution is you're going to try and change the whole of society in like one big go. And the only way you can do that is by claiming a kind of knowledge about society and history that nobody can really have. And therefore, if you try to do that, you're inevitably going to fail and you're inevitably just going to end up trying to impose your vision on the world in a way that becomes ultimately you know, totalitarian and sort of terroristic. And, you know, for example, I mean, that is a view of the that is a view of what isn't isn't politically possible or politically knowable, which, for example, you know, is very close to the views of Friedrich Hayek, you know, the kind of founding figure of neoliberalism. And it's one reason why, you know, some sections of the sort of intelligentsia and the sort of political class gravitate towards neoliberalism from the 70s onwards. On the one hand, there's this general sort of disillusion in the 70s with this from the 70s onwards, very various strands of radical thought, like the radical democracy, thinking of Leclerc and Mouffe, for example, basically say you need to have a different vision of radical change than a sort of revolutionary imaginary. That basically the idea of revolution is inherently flawed. And then obviously the final end of the Soviet experiment at the you know, in 1989, or 91 really, so when the 91 is when the Soviet Union formally ends. You know, for me, it's really striking. Like that experience in the 90s that we've talked about before of seeing like Russian society just collapse and like the the standard of live, you know, the life expectancy collapsing in Russia and everything. You know, I mean, the way it shaped my politics, like my thinking about revolutionary politics, actually was that, well, it seemed to me that, well, look, what, what's been the final outcome of the Russian revolution? The final outcome of the Russian revolution is Russian workers are worse off there than they are like in britain so you know it it doesn't look like it worked that well there's other there's other ways not on a long term but it might have worked for a certain period of time how long did you think it was going to last for well that's what i thought in the 90s and what i would say now in in 2021 is like trying to have a functional left or a functional workers movement in a world absent the soviet union has not worked out at all well either you know, that's been, that's been going really badly for us now for the past 30 years. It turns out that the Soviet, the presence of the Soviet, the existence of the Soviet Union, the existence of a sort of geopolitical power block that was you know, opposed to Western liberal capitalism uh, was a necessary pre was a necessary condition of social democracy. And without that, without that, prop being you know in place i think it's the specter it's the it's 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 the psychological confidence of the left or mass to be able to take action and not feel so insecure that it turns on it turns on itself which it keeps on doing over and over and over again well i think that predated the last 20 years <laughs> yeah i think that's I mean, that's part of the the problem of 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 the project of the left which is the version of revolution in which in which you have a, a an authoritarian government that says, you know, you must do this. That's always, always thought of as a temporary state of affairs leading to, you know, a, a, an outpouring of democracy in which people find their own way in the world. Okay, well, this, look, this gets to a really central thing, actually. That's a really central issue because one of the critique, the sort of post-Marxist, post-structuralist, sort of radical democratic critique of the revolutionary tradition which has has a big influence on my thinking, like amongst other things. 
one of its arguments has been historically that indeed there is a deep connection between sectarianism and revolutionary thinking that if you if you think about the world and you think about the process of making change in terms of having a, a clear and dogmatic idea about the direction of historical change and your place in it and a conviction that in some sense history is on your side and that you you can completely transform society with one decisive intervention like the storming of the winter palace the storming of the bastille etc then inevitably you will become dogmatic to a point that will engender sectarianism and that idea that that there is that there is a, a sort of necessary direction to history um, there's a necessity to history and so therefore a necessity to to revolution that idea that like there's a clearly identified revolutionary subject and if you were if you're acting on behalf of that revolutionary subject then that justifies you know suppression of other potential actors that that goes as, as grossly as you know we shouldn't have fe- a feminist movement or or, or you know um uh, movements for black power etc because that distracts from the class struggle and the class struggle is the thing that you know they're the chosen revolutionary subject i mean all of those bits are the bits that don't really work anymore that don't really make sense anymore and also the idea of revolution as like this punctual event in which everything changes overnight is you know those are the bits that don't that make revolution very hard to think about or make it very very unpersuasive basically at the moment yeah i think we should play what's up by four non blondes which i think is a 1990s song because it's just got this energy for it especially as a, as a woman and i think i sang it in drunken karaoke the day the tories got in in 2015 in a pub somewhere and i just uh, it has that kind of crescendo of the kind of like shit man we've got to do something about this life like it's really a struggle and yeah maybe it's revolution and it's got that you know it's like you know it's a commercial song i love it i think it's got a great energy to it and i pray Then we return after going through this huge amount of history. Then we're left with this problem that we started at the beginning, which is uh, we're faced with a situation in which in which dram- huge dramatic change needs to happen relatively quickly. And previously, we'd have thought of that level of change as revolutionary. And like climate change is one of the reasons why this, you know, this is the problem. This is the problem that needs to be addressed. And yet revolutions doesn't seem possible that idea of revolution that we we've inherited from the 20th century doesn't seem viable we're not we're, we're at a stage where you know that classical idea of revolution is really really hard to think through or to hold on to basically and not particularly convincing because of this problem th- this problem of like the certainty that comes with like acting in uh, uh, in in the direction of history etc just doesn't become you know, it becomes very difficult to hold on to. The other thing that happens, of course, is that society becomes incredibly much more complex, partly through things such as moving, you know, the, moving from Fordism to post-Fordism, these sorts of terms that we've used before and which, and also the effects of the, of the, of the, 
the sort of cultural revolutions and the, and the emergence of mass consumption, you know, in the, in the post-war period that feeds into the counterculture, etc., you end up with this much more complicated, dare I say, intersectional world in which, you know, the, the, the idea of a homogenizing industrial proletariat as the, 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 the leading direction of history becomes much less convincing. So then you get in this, in this process of the 90s in which, you know, the idea that the world could change just basically becomes very hard to hold on to, basically, even if you're on the left. And then you have this moment, you know, this the, the moment of 2008 in which that world that seemed quite solid of neoliberalism falls apart. And then you have 2011, you know, that is that is one of the political effects of that, of that, the sort of reemergence of, of left politics in, in, in a way. But it becomes complicated, Nadia, because in terms, because you were involved in a revolution in, in Egypt, you were actually guys, there, actually there, yeah, yeah, which looked a lot more like the sort of revolution yeah. events that we might have thought of in the twentieth century. Yeah, exactly. But exactly. that is just not the case of what happens in with Occupy or even the fifteen M movement in Spain. That becomes that's something else that that doesn't look like a, a classical revolution. And yeah, but I think I think, but I think you can you can probably answer the question. And this is might make me seem like tanky Nadia a little bit, but probably not. Hopefully not. Um, I mean, you've got the same. Frankly, you've got the quite similar factors in Egypt in terms of like the percentage of the population that are you know below the poverty line, or to use a more classic term, like working class, etc that put their bodies on the line and kept on coming and coming and coming. You know, it's like 100 million people in this country. There was just loads of people who could participate in this thing to tip it over really quickly. And you just don't have such a different identification of people along complicated, like seven different class lines or whatever, like you have in the UK or Europe or whatever. So you had those conditions that looked a lot more classically 20th century European for that movement to actually occur, you know. That's really interesting. But it's also it's also an example of a revolution where without, not without revolutionaries, but without a, a communist party or some sort of thing which, which sure. would fulfill the role and of the of communist course, party. And the Muslim Brotherhood is the thing that ended up fulfilling that. Well, role. I mean, that's the other question, which is that you can you retrospectively remove the revolutionary title from an uprising based on its outcome? And I would say that the answer is no. You can't say that it's not a revolution because, in fact, there was a massive social void and it, the, the revolution was never able to consolidate its demands in a way that was at all meaningful within a year, you know, because the organized force, as you pointed out, was the Muslim Brotherhood, which in fact have been taking the role of the welfare state for the last, you know, definitely 20, 30, if not much longer time because of what happened with structural adjustment and neoliberalism and Mubarak's government, etc. However, the, if we go back to our, our point of analysis of how did it happen, I mean, the, the Winter Palace was not stormed, but, you know, there were very clear demands that were formulated. You're right, there wasn't a communist party or there wasn't an organizing party behind it. But, you know, it's the first time in 7,000 7, years of Egyptian history that uh, a leader was disposed. Like, it's serious stuff, you know. So I would definitely classify it as a revolution. I really, I kind of resent people going, oh, no, maybe it was an uprising. I'm like, mm, no, I think actually it classify it, it fulfills those uh, criteria. Yeah, I mean, the government was overthrown. That's one of the yeah, and there was a counter revolution. There was, of course, there was a counter revolution yeah. and loads of other forces that played in. You know, 
but you're right in terms of saying that it had a lot in common visually in terms of the movements of the squares. But yeah, you didn't have a government overthrown. I think, was there a government overthrown anywhere else? Well, Tunisia. Tunisia, yeah. Tunisia, yeah, sorry. Tunis and then Egypt, yeah. One of the bands which is most sort of clearly identified with with revolutionary politics in the 1960s is the MC5, who formed in Detroit. And they were managed by this guy called John Sinclair, who was a sort of an artist, but also a, a sort a, a, you know, a countercultural figure uh, and a sort of revolutionary political figure. It's not clear how, you know, t- to what degree the band were um, on board. I think people, so the, the most famous people in, in, in MC5 were Wayne Kramer and Fred Sonic Smith. I'm pretty sure Wayne Kramer was on board with the, the revolution. But the, basically, John, John Sinclair was really influenced by the Black Panther Party. And in fact, Huey Newton, who was the, the founder of the, and the leader of the Black Panther Party, he sort of had a word with John Sinclair and said, look, you need to, you need to step up to the plate. So he's, he formed this organization called the White Panther Party, which was a sort of militant leftist organization which would support the White Panther Party program. Although they added to the Black Panther Party program, the White Panthers added... Their aims were fucking in the streets, <laughs> drugs, <laughs> sex, drugs, and rock and roll, and um, the abolition mm. of capitalism. Not necessarily in that order. Yeah, revolution <laughs> so, and fucking in the street was one of their slogans. <laughs> um, uh, we, we did talk about the the, the 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 potential problems with the sexual revolution earlier. Basically, John Sinclair. He, he gets arrested in I think in the late 60s. He passes a couple of joints around at a party, and, and one of the people he passes it to was an undercover police person, police woman, I think it was, and he got 10 years for doing that, which became a real cause celeb, actually. John Lennon wrote a book, uh, wrote a song called John Sinclair about him. And famously, Abby, Abby Hoffman from the Yippies jumped on stage at Woodstock when, um, when the Who were playing to try to shout about John Sinclair and Pete Townsend kicked him off the stage, basically. So they were this this band who were sort of really caught up in this 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 real sort of like acid communist moment. You'd say when the sort of counterculture gets to its most sort of radical moment. The MC Five play at the at the Chicago nineteen sixty eight Chicago Democratic Convention protest, which turned into a police riot, which is a really famous instance in the US sort of counterculture. The songs you'd probably point to something like "Kick Out the Jams." A lot of their songs don't necessarily have revolutionary lyrics or, or obliquely revolutionary lyrics, but like especially if we played a sort of live version of Kick Out the Jams, you could see the sort of revolutionary energy they were working with. I think relating to that moment, sort of 10 years ago, to that longer history we talked about is interesting because I think it's making me think, well, what the, the question for me is, well, which of the various ideas of what a revolution might look like survived the 20th century? And if you'd have asked it, I mean, if you'd have asked me that question in sort of 2005, I'd have said, I'm not, I'm not, I don't know if any of them have, but maybe in a certain sense, the kind of anarchist idea 
you know, which you might link to the councillist idea of a more or less spontaneous uprising, the spontaneous occupation of like workplaces, homes, the streets, you know, of a kind of leaderless mass sort of survived at least at the at the fringes just as a kind of utopian way of imagining things and it was what kind of informed you know the radical fringes of the social forum movement the anti-globalization movement etc and and it then it feeds into things like the indignados and in spain and there's also i would say to some extent the popular front at least for people like me, yeah, the idea of the popular front government ultimately did sort of survive. I mean, that's the logical conclusion of the thinking of people like Leclerc and Mouffe, the idea of the rainbow coalition, the idea that, okay, you're, you're not going to have one party or one organisation or one social group represented. And of course, that's, a, that's already an idea in the 30s in the writing of Antonio Gramsci, you know, the Italian communist leader who's reflecting on the defeat of, the communists by the fascist in Italy in the 30s and he's he that thing that we've called like the storming the winter palace he calls it the war of maneuver in which there's like there's one move you can you make which is to capture the, the central position and then you've taken power and he contrasts that with the war what he calls the war of position and the war of position is more like in his metaphorical imagery it's like trench warfare like you you capture a bit of ground and you hold that ground then you move forward, you capture a bit more ground. And that in a way, I mean, the logical conclusion of the the concept of the war of position is to some extent to reject the whole, the whole distinction between reform and revolution, for example, is to say, look, actually, you, you don't know whether a given set of reforms will ultimately lead to a kind of revolutionary tipping point. All you can do is try to make them and then try to keep pushing forward, try to keep building your forces. But in effect, you know, the war of position, I think it it has always been ended up being quite close as a concept to the sort of the idea of the popular front, the idea that you're going to have a kind of complex, relatively complex coalition of social and political forces. You might occupy state power, you might not. But even if you do, you recognize that occupying state power is not going to be enough like to actually do what you want to do. And I think that idea survives to some extent into the early 20th century. But then what, something that happens around, I think, again, around sort of 2011, 2012 is at least in, in the kind of you know, tiny bits of the social world that, you know, some of us have occupied. It's because of the perception that that wave of apparently relatively spontaneous, you know, sort of ground up, you know, revolutionary movements, including, which, you, which you might include Occupy, which definitely includes, you know, the uh, movement of the squares in all its different forms. Because that's largely been defeated, been successfully, you know, hegemonized by a counter-revolution, or has just been sort of defeated and just neutralized. That's the perception, anyway. There's this kind of return to the idea of kind of classical, you know, the classical idea of revolution. So there's this wave of interest, at least among sort of like graduate students, uh, you know, uh, and sort of intellectuals and some artists. There's this return to the idea of communism, the idea of Leninism. You know, there's a this big conference at Birkbeck called the Idea of Communism. That's people like Zizek and, and JD's speaking at it. And this is almost to me that's like it, but it's almost like it's just a sort of mirror image of the perceived failures of, of the kind of spontaneism, the spontaneous nature of the movement of the squares. You know, it, it, it's so yes. Be, so because that was, once you make a conference on it, you know, <laughs> it's like a, it's like an independent inquiry. You're like, we're well, <laughs> fucked. <laughs> so that so there's that. 
but of course that doesn't really have any purchase like what that has that doesn't have any real sort of connection with the sort of real real world politics you know there's no there's no mass working class or peasantry like waiting to be led by this new generation of self-styled leninist leaders and in 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 the world of substantial politics what happens instead is something quite different is you know there's a research in the past six seven years you know there's a resurgence of the idea of democratic socialism that there's in, in, in effect like whether people will admit this to themselves or not i think that in effect there's a kind of acknowledgement or that the only form of revolution that hasn't been tested the only idea of revolution that hasn't been tested to destruction on some level it is something like the sort of you know the the, the idea the popular front government you know idea the and that and that's what's to some extent, that's what's informing the move, the Bernie Sanders movement and the Corbyn movement. Although I would say, you know, the, the, in both cases, and especially the case of the Corbyn movement, there were there were too many people around Corbynism whose only way of conceptualising what a revolutionary movement would look like was basically Leninist, because they'd they'd been trained in the weird like Leninist and Trotskyist sects, which a lot of them still belong to. And I think that really, I think that massively limited Corbynism's capacity because ultimately people couldn't really get their heads around, well, okay, we've captured this thing called the Labour Party, but like, what is it? Or is it a revolutionary party? Like, can we turn it into the Communist Party in 1917? Like, what do we do with it? And like, I don't think, I don't think Corbyn ever knew what to do with it. They couldn't figure out what to do with it. And they they couldn't conceptualise it really as the kind of coalition of forces that it was. And, and, and they couldn't conceptualise the need to broaden out the coalition, you know, beyond the Labour Party. You know, they could only think of the party as the only possible vehicle for it. Well, uh, like one way into that is uh, um, Rodrigo Nunes's uh, recent book, "Neither Vertical Nor Horizontal," which really, you know, like the, the vertical, we've talked about that strategy of revolution. Horizontal, we've talked about the mass strike sort of idea, that sort of anarchist idea of revolution. No, he sort of says, look, there are two left melancholies. There's a 1917 left melancholy, and there's a 1968 left melancholy. You know, there's a melancholy around trying to recreate the 1917 model of revolution even though the circumstances are completely different and there's a sort of melancholic attempt to redo the 1968 version of revolution and you know which leads to sort of the more horizontal time he said look look these are that, that's like a spiral these two melancholies circle around each other and reinforce each other basically uh, and you know you so you get this oscillation that you were talking about earlier Jem, between the top of like 2011 which is let's retry the horizontalist conception of of revolution in the 1960s, although gone through a whole strange process in the meantime, and sort of like, you know, what that was carrying was the idea that you couldn't actually change the world, and the reaction to that would be to flip back to the Leninist idea of revolution. Well, that's getting us nowhere. We need to reject both reject both of those melancholies around that and try to face up to the to the problem that we have now you know the circumstances that, that we have now well i was going to say i was thinking in terms of what nadia you know says about sort of you know talking you know thinking about who the audience is and it's true like this quite linear narrative that we've given especially the last bit is going to be really confusing because some people listening will have met people who are like absolutely committed marxist leninists you know today like they haven't people haven't stopped being that They'll have met people, some people will have met people whose politics are completely 
some form of anarchist sort of syndicalism or something and and they'll think that and the truth is like the actual ecology of the contemporary left contemporary politics is that people committed to like different versions of all these things every single thing we've talked about is coming from some particular moment actually there are people around today who totally believe that thing and we'll say that's what they mean by revolution so it's not just a sort of linear process whereby like at one moment in history everybody believes that and then the next moment everybody believes this so i mean especially like in the american left but this has really influenced like the corbynite left in britain there's been this we, we've got into this weird situation now where there's a sort of general consensus that what we're after is basically social democracy it's a program like the green new deal like a, a that would have been definitely classified as merely reformist by most people who regarded themselves as revolutionaries until very recently. But on the other hand, the kind of theoretical ways that people, especially people around things like Jacobin, the theoretical ways they have of conceptualising what they're doing and what political organisation and strategy looks like, they tend to be pretty much exclusively drawn from the revolutionary tradition. So they only really use like sort of Trotskyist and Leninist conceptual apparatus to think about what they're doing, which has some really productive results, but it also produces some real sort of, you know, impasses, I think. So, you know, one of the slogans like to sort of of the past few years, which got came out of the American left and got taken up by Corbynites was the idea that, uh, well, we're not reformists, even though basically we're just asking for a restoration of post-war social democracy, because what we want are non-reformist reforms. Like when we talked about this when we were planning and saying, like, it's a re- it's a great phrase on the one hand, the idea of non-reformist reforms, because it because it, it kind of suggests what we want. It suggests that we want a set of reforms that would significantly shift the balance of power in society and therefore you know have some sort of long-term revolutionary implications but the trouble with using that terminology to say that is well look when the word reformist was first coined the people who were called reformists like bernstein had every assumption that the reforms they were in favor of were, were exactly of that nature that they, they that it was a way of sort of eventually achieving radical change so the whole concept of the distinction between reform and revolution is based on the assumption that, you know, you can't have non-reformist reforms. Like you're either in favour of reform or you're in favour of revolution. The people who, like Bernstein, who were called reformists by their revolutionary critics never accepted that anyway. Yeah, but don't we, th- don't we think that's because of some of the stuff that we talked about earlier, as in like where the concept of revolution is kind of where it sits in the current discourse and whether people think it's discredited or not because if you if you're if if by saying what we want is reforms is more of a mobilizing tactic than saying what we want is revolution then maybe it's the right tactic yeah to have when in fact the outcome might be more revolution might be revolutionary but if you call it that you know you're not going to get people behind you i mean that that whole picture is complicated by the idea that um it's really not clear, especially after the defeat of Saunders and, and particularly the defeat of Corbyn or Corbynism, it, it's really not clear whether you can have reforms, even modest reforms, without a level of struggle, antagonistic struggle with with the forces of capital or at least some of the forces of capital, which you might associate more with with revolutionary change. And so that's the, this is the sort of idea that we mentioned at the beginning, that perhaps it's only in times when you have growth 
that you can have rising living standards and still have capitalist profitability, etc. So like one of the ways you would do that is to think about, well, look, let's not associate revolution with a method of change, but like with the scale of change. An interesting person to go to on that sort of idea is Eric Olin Wright, who's written a whole, whole series of, of books, but he wrote one, I can't remember, it's not called 20, Capitalism, uh, no, Socialism in the 21st Century, perhaps it's called that, perhaps that's your book, Tim, I can't remember. His one is How to Be an Anti-Capitalist yes, in the 21st yes, that's Century. Right. That's why I was getting confused. Uh, like, and, and basically, he's got various versions of this, but like he sort of says, look, there are different socialist strategies, right? And basically, they're not necessarily in conflict and they should all play a role. And one of them, he talks about taming capitalism as reformist reforms, but reforms which which aim to ameliorate the effects of capitalism rather than to change it, right? Then he talks about like ruptural change in terms of that classical storm in the Winter Palace idea of a, or, or even perhaps the mass strike version, but like that ruptural change, there's a big rupture that goes on. And then he talks about this other strategy of eroding capitalism, and you erode it by changing the way people live within capitalism, changing the structures of capitalism. Perhaps the thing that would be associated with that would be like massively growing the cooperative economy, et cetera, so that people have different experiences. Perhaps the UBI is often thought of in terms of that as well, in terms of this problem of like there's a gap between what's necessary and what's possible at the moment, what's necessary in terms of dealing with climate change. And that has to be bridged. You can only bridge that by this strategy of eroding capitalism. But the metaphor he uses to sort of structure this discussion that are his thoughts is he has all these graphs. And one of them is this graph he calls the transition trough. And it's something like this, right? In order to, you know, you want to change the world in order to improve people's lives. But the sorts of disruption that comes with any serious attempt to change the world, either in, in a sort of classical ruptural strategy, or even in, in terms of, you know, a Corbyn government, in the current situation, that would provoke serious backlash from the forces of capital, a capital strike, perhaps, capital refusing to invest, you know, capital flight money coming out of the country. It would be a disruption which would basically um, make people's lives worse in the short term. So there's this trough that you have to get through where people are not going to go for the disruption of their lives in the, in the short term in order to get to, you know, improve living standards later on. And so a lot of the strategies such as eroding capitalism, perhaps taming capitalism, they're all about shallowing out that trough, making it easier to cross that that bridge, basically. It's a really interesting way of, of thinking of uh, sidestepping the sort of um, reform revolution debate by saying we don't know how you change the world. You should try all of these things, but we do know there's this problem of disruption that's common to all of them. So in, in uh, Rodrigo Nunes's book, again, he's got a really nice gloss on this. He sort of says, look, if we take Eric Olin Wright's approach seriously and eric Olin reich talks about it as a plurality of strategies everybody's trying all of these things but one of the things you have to do in that is to try to manage the velocity of change right you want change which is which is fast enough that things actually do change social relations do change you, you have to achieve a sort of escape velocity from capitalist social relations but change can't be so fast that social rep- reproduction gets seriously disrupted um and therefore you know people might choose fascism and and reaction as a response, I really like that managing velocities of 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 change. I don't know how you do that, but I also like the idea of that like plurality of strategies because we don't know how the world changes. It's one answer to that problem we started with. You need change, which which is on a scale of uh, that's normally associated with revolution. Revolution doesn't seem possible. We're not really sure whether reform is possible without ca- encountering a lot of the problems traditionally associated with revolution. 
So you try all of these things and try to keep them in balance with each other by maintaining the right velocity. Who's the we that does that? I'm not sure. That's another problem. Well, I think we definitely need to play the internationale. I'm not sure which version of it, but, you know, I mean, if anything makes me feel like a lefty, it's how the, the internationale does move me. You know, it really does. And I like hearing it on with a, with a lot of other people. And I have a dream of it being played in pubs, you know, in a future life. <laughs> Well, the Internationale is the classic album. The, was the, it was written and popularised as the anthem of the Second International in the late 19th century and early 20th century. But then it was then retained by the Comintern, the Communist International, uh, as its sort of official anthem. It, it was originally written in French, and it, it is referring directly to the Socialist International. I mean, it's referring to the organisation. Uh, my anarchist dad taught me to sing the words not to sing. The line, the international unites the human race, should be replaced with the phrase, the international working class unites the human race, because uh, uh, the latter is communist. So we have Billy, Bra- I mean, the most obvious version for us to play would be Billy Bragg. Should we talk about Manu Chao or oh, something? Oh, yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah, talk about Manu Chao, yeah. So the title track from Manu Chao's album, I mean, Manu Chao, this is a really interesting sort of phenomenon. I mean, Manu Chao is like a, is a sort of French Spanish singer and he was, and his music really became associated with the kind of international um, anti-capitalist movement in the late nineties and early two thousands. At least, at least, you know, it was music you would hear a lot, you know, within that scene. And I guess it was, you know, it did sort of, um, if its popularity did express the very strong desire people had at that time for a kind of international movement and the sense that, you know, after the end of the Cold War and the imposition of the global neoliberal order by the World Trade Organization, that we really, really needed forms of international solidarity in order to confront capital. And and this, you know, this mu- the popularity of this music really did kind of express that. And it has bits in it from Subcomandante Marcos from the Zapatistas, doesn't it? Yeah, I think it samples stuff, it samples him. Solo voy con mi pena, solaba mi condena, correré mi destino para burlar la ley, perdido en el corazón de la grande Babilón. Me dicen el clandestino por no llevar papel. I saw Mano Chao play live in Florence at the European Social Forum after there was this huge, huge march, the first anti-war march, and and which which would have led to, to the, the February 14th march. That's when that was first proposed at that European Social Forum. Wow. So I saw him at the end. He was at playing at the end of that of that march. Uh, in fact, I saw him. I was with um, Marie Rosa de la Costa, who's like his famous 70s Marxist feminist, who I danced to Manu Chao with. Yeah, that's my Manu Chao story. Yeah, we, I was on that demo. I don't remember Manu Chao, though. 
I don't think I went. I think you we were doing home. yoga, Jeremy. You were doing yoga. <laughs> I think we you all went. You had left to do yoga. <laughs> The other last thing I wanted to talk about was <laughs> one something we can like re, re, that out of all of this stuff that we can sort of hold on to, right? Perhaps it, the one thing we can hold on to on, with some sort of certainty out of all of that revolutionary trans, the, uh, the discussions of revolution and all these sorts of things is just the problem of transition. So that's like a classic problem. Revolutionary transition is this classic problem of like, okay, so Eric Olin writes transition trough, obviously, is one, one approach of that. Another way people have thought about this, and this goes back to Lenin, actually, um, while Lenin wasn't completely like just a rupturist where you have one a rupture and then everything's different the next day, he says that that's the position that the anarchists take, the spontaneists take, that like things can change straight away in a rupture. And on the other side, you have the social democrats who say you don't need any form of rupture. And his thing is you do need rupture, but that doesn't change everything because you have a rupture with us, people who, who have been you know, how the whole experience, to go back to Kosselec, the whole experience leads them to think that the only certain things are possible. And even Lenin is saying this, we're going to get to a society in which workers rule themselves, but they've every of the experiences so far has trained them to take orders, basically, to be managed rather than to self-manage themselves. You're trying to produce societies in which we ourselves, as we currently exist, wouldn't quite fit, basically. That's the problem of, like, revolutionary transition. Lenin sort of says there need to be a process of, like, training, and education, etc., but that's going to be led by the Vanguard Party. The argument I want to make, though, is transition is the problem of today. People talk about transition towns in in terms of like you know towns trying to adapt so that they can they can be ready for the sorts of changes that climate change is going to bring and and ameliorating climate change is going to bring. You know, so that the problem of transition, which pe- previously would have been hidden away in this in minority niche literature around revolutionary transition suddenly that those same problems are, are basically one of the key problems of politics today so that's one of the ways in which i think this literature can or this whole conception of revolution can be sort of changed under, under present circumstances that and the revolutionary subject who is that person who is the revolutionary subject yeah well i mean that's the other thing that's fallen apart is that like the the idea that you could that there is a chosen subject, there's a chosen chosen people, a chosen subject, chosen by history, and that um, their struggles are more are more important than the other struggles. Like that that doesn't hold up anymore. But just because society is so complex, so the the response to that is that like that has to be the the, the subject has to be formed. You can't, it doesn't exist. You have to form it basically. Yeah, and I think that subject has to be formed through a politics of solidarity, not a politics of identity. Yeah, I'd, I'd sign up to that one. Yeah, I agree, yeah. Well, I'm glad we solved the problem of revolution. <laughs> Next week, people. <laughs> How do you solve the problem of revolution? <laughs> well, so that does go on to like the next question, in a way, uh, on the list of, of these quickfire questions, which is, I mean, what, what makes you a revolutionary? Or is it even useful to have a political identity like that? I mean, I think it's useful if it mo- if at, at that particular juncture in history or that moment, you think that that is, a, it is an identity that will move people. As we were just talking about the, re- the revolutionary subject, like will, will that, you know, if, if calling yourself a, is a reformist, if you've got a movement of people calling themselves reformists, which to me might sound like it's a bit wet, because perhaps because of my political experience, but maybe for other people that is what's going to move them. And in the same vein, 
you know, if that if that is an identity that's going to work into creating change, then then a positive change or you know progressive change, then 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 I'm for it. But I do tend to think that revolution is something that you do rather than you are. So I don't think uh, the other the other side of the coin is that I think you're a revolutionary if you do certain things rather than you call yourself that. So I'm not sure which which side I'd fall upon in that argument. So how how would that relate to somebody calling themselves, say, literally a communist? Like, isn't a communist also what you do rather than what you are? Yeah, I don't know. I think revolutionary has, I think, yeah, revolutionary doesn't particularly um, peg you towards a specific tendency or a specific faction. I think it's wider, yeah. I just suddenly got struck by a thought, I'm, and I must express it now. <laughs> um, but it, like, let's think about when when Ash Sarkar said that um, I'm literally a communist. It was in response to Piers Morgan, Piers Morgan sort of basically just interpreting it as a, as as a liberal, uh, and then trying to associate, attach it to sort of to sort of liberal identity politics in some sort of sense. And so she responded by saying, "No, I'm not. I'm not a liberal. I'm not even a socialist. I'm literally a communist." You know, and so you can see in 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 that sort of level, that's, I can see the the utility in that, right? Yeah. Yes, 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 exactly. Yeah, it's a relational exactly. term, isn't it? That's good. Yeah, no. Well, that's why I've always, I've always, I, I had this little bomb mo I've used for years, but I say, which is to uh, to social democrats, I'm a communist. Like to communists, so to communists, I'm an anarchist, and to anarchists, I'm a social democrat. Whatever you say I am, I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember what that's from. That's from a... It's the... It, well, the Arctic Monkeys' first album, but it's from Alan Silito, Saturday yes, night and yes, Sunday yes, morning. Yes, yes, yes. Whatever they say I am, I, I, that's what I'm not. Because <laughs> I'm from Nottingham and I'm a grumpy <laughs> bastard. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I, the question, like, are, uh, are you a revolutionary? Just, it, like, you know... It's done. I can give you an answer to that, but it'll similarly be three hours long because I'd have to go through the whole history of what it means, what revolution would mean. The thing is, I sort of feel like on the one hand, we all know, I generally am against sort of identity politics and political positions as identities because you just get frozen Mm. in them. And I think I completely agree with Nadia. And that's why I tend to be quite dismissive of people calling themselves communists and calling themselves revolutionaries when we are clearly not in a pre-revolutionary situation. We're not in a historical moment when the difference between like social democratic aspirations and revolutionary communist aspirations matters to anything. So it seems sort of banal. But I also feel like I completely understand, you know, when people use those, want to use those terms about themselves, because I feel like... Well, there is a difference, to be honest. I do feel just in, in my everyday life all the time, I'm very conscious of the different, just on, on, in every interaction I have, to be honest, with other people, like other adults. I'm conscious of the difference between people with whom I share, like a fundamental critique of contemporary society, that I basically think it's all fucking bullshit. <laughs> like, and, it's, and it should all change. And people... Who, even though indeed we we probably would like share a lot of you know short to medium term political aspirations and ideas, just don't just don't share that outlook really. You know, they're people they the people who they want to have a functioning public sector. They don't like the Tories. You know, they would never vote for a, a Tory. You know, they'd probably always vote Labour. They they'd even they even a lot of them would have like voted for Corbyn as Labour leader or something. You know, because he because he seemed like a really nice guy. 
but it's more you know it's, it's a difference often i think robson it kind of registered itself kind of affectively and in sort of cultural attitudes like as much as anything else and i just think there is something there is something there i mean there is there is something i so, so i do sort of i understand why you know for, for some people it's sort of important to think of themselves as a revolutionary as distinct from people who aren't because there is something about the scale of one's critique you know mm. There's just about this because I mean we said right at the beginning that part of the issue is it's about it's a shorthand. Scale. It's an important shorthand in conversation and interaction. Yeah, but there's a problem with that. Is that is that um, we've gone through about five different conceptions of what revolution might mean, and when you use that as a shorthand, it could mean any of those to those people. But then the next question then will be: What are we in a situation? Okay, this is in some senses this is our core question, and this is the question animating the whole epic show is are we in a situation where even minimal social democratic reforms are now effectively revolutionary demands i mean meaning it's just you know things that a lot of people like in britain a lot of people still think it's basically a reasonable moderate demand to have a fully funded national health service that isn't in the process of being privatized and then a lot of us would say, yeah, that's a good demand that we share, but unless you're willing to engage in confrontations with direct confrontation with capital, you know, that may well, you know, up to and including, you know, <laughs> violent conflict, there's no way that demand is being met. And is that, well, I, I think, I mean, we framed it as a question, but I think we know what we think the answer is, don't we? Well, I mean, we don't know, but like my analysis leads me to believe that we're not in a situation we're in a situation in which any any struggle about re, about increasing the resources of the working class though in the most broadly drawn sense basically means an antagonistic struggle with those who have the resources because we're not living in a society in which the pie is growing and I'm not really sure that we're going to get to the, to a to a situation in which the pie will be growing anytime soon so that means it's directly antagonistic yeah, and, and and recent history with Corbynism seems to, you know, it sort of puts the fear of God into me actually. That so, that like a lot of the things, a lot of the norms that I thought would be the the basis upon which politics could be conducted, as long as you kept your demands within sort of quite modest terms, that, that they sort of got torn up quite quickly. I shouldn't have been surprised by that, but it's always a surprise when your analysis is confirmed. <laughs> <laughs> this is Ashley. <laughs>